this is the final sermon that I'm talking to you about in terms of discerning power. So we've discussed, you know, justice, being prepared. We've discussed having a discretion in your life, being alert, being decisive, having discernment. And today we're going to be talking about persuasiveness. Now, persuasiveness is the ability to convince or to compel or to, you know, uh, persuade another person to think and, and believe in Jesus. And it's something that is real for our lives. Persuasiveness is juxtapositioned against contentiousness. Oftentimes, uh, when you try and persuade somebody, what you do is you run into a level of contention because they don't want to be persuaded. How many people have found that when they start talking about Jesus to somebody, they run into a negative minefield and they start exploding in front of them and it's like, you know, don't go any further because we had one minister there yesterday in the, in the meeting and she she um, believes that uh, it's okay to marry gay couples and uh, she was quite verbose about that in the as you can imagine that's quite a, a, an interesting uh, setup there you've got ministers and then one minister comes out and says something like that and she said you know I'll do it with the full blessing of my church and the man sitting beside her says hey hey I'm part of the member of your church she, she said he says you don't have the full blessing of your church <laughs> so I thought it was quite interesting uh, you know and sometimes persuasiveness produces a a level of contention because people necessarily don't want to hear what you have to say. You start to talk the truth, you start to speak the truth, and and immediately you run into untruth and you believe you run into an attitude that says, don't tell me, don't talk to me, I don't want to hear what you have to say. So oftentimes when you're trying to be persuasive, a lot of times it produces the contention. And I don't know if there's anything you can do about that apart from manage that. And learning how to manage that is a gift from God, I suppose. So we live in a very persuasive world. Uh, From every direction, there's a play for your mind to try and convince you somehow to believe either truth or believe deception. When you read the, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is working to persuade you to believe the truth of God's Word and the account of God's Word. When you go to education situations, if they're secular, there's a whole move out there to persuade you to, to throw away your belief, to throw away your convictions and to believe a lie. This uh, battle for your mind and every aspect of your life that is trying to take you and and, and deceive you and you'll find continuously that there is an opportunity in your mind to either believe truth or uh, suppress truth. Uh, We are in a world that is contrary to us. It's a world that has a contrary opinion to us. And no matter what we do or what we say, there is this universal doubt that's become part of our our, uh, language. It's 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 like We doubt everything. We question everything. Now, that's not so bad if you've got critical thinking and you're thinking about the Word of God and you're asking good questions. That sort of, you know, is not so much doubt, but it's the ability to say, how is this and how does this work and how can I put this into practice? That's fine. It's not doubting it. But when it's this sort of questioning and, is it true or not true or is it, you know, that sort of universal doubt is something that our society has really 
really bred into itself. In, in university, you can't write a paper on what you think and you believe. You have to actually put down all the sources. Um, otherwise, your con- convictions are uh, disp- you know, dispelled as being nonsense. It's just your idea. We doubt that you could have ideas like that. Where did you get those ideas from, you know? Um, you have to give some source. And everything is questioned and everything is put under the light and everything is, you know, can you prove that? Tell us the empirical proof for that. So this universal doubt has become part of the language you speak. And when you talk to somebody about the Lord, uh, we don't have any knowledge of life after death, you know. How, how do you know that that's true? You can't prove God to anybody. And so it begins to be something that is very difficult for us to prove. And temptation in our lives is extremely persuasive. Temptation comes to you and it starts talking right on the wavelength where you're thinking. And if you don't think critically when, when temptation comes and start to question the persuasion of temptation, you'll just get sucked straight into it. Um, you know, if you, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24, you just write that in as a reference and have a read of it later. You know... Eve didn't exercise any level of critical thinking when it came to the devil's persuasion. She didn't step back and say, hey, hey come on, now, are you asking me to differ, differ with God? You know, I have this relationship with God where I love God, you know. Um, are you asking me to doubt that what he said is true? She didn't even, she just went along with, and she looked at the tree and she saw it was good for fruit and it was desired to make a person wise and and she just got sucked in and didn't critically test what she was going through, didn't actually ask the question, you know, what, what are you trying to do here? And because she didn't use critical thinking, she just went along with it. She got sucked straight into it. And so we understand that you have to, sort of stop when it comes to temptation and and pull yourself up and say, exactly what are you wanting me to do, Satan? Exactly what are you implying right here? Are you wanting me to do this, this and this? Is this what you're wanting me to do? So the idea that you have to question something is really quite good. You need to question things. If, if, um, If some of the Godly men in uh, Hitler's day had done some very strong thinking about what was happening in Hitler's day. They would have stood up and said, you know what? I don't think that's a good idea. But only a few men, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, only a few men, you know, critically thought about what was going on and decided to make a stand and say, you know, we shouldn't do this. What, What actually is happening under the regime, under Hitler's regime, under the Third Reich, is not good. We shouldn't be going this way and stuff. They've done lots of tests in psychology. And, you know, we, we te- if somebody's got a white coat on, we tend to believe them. And then somebody with a white coat tells us to do something. And we, and we think, oh, well, should I? They've got a white coat. Maybe we, we should just obey the guy with a white coat on. And we discover that that's a very dangerous concept. It's a very dangerous concept to give away your choice because you think somebody has a better way of thinking a better idea about it because you're letting them direct your mind. So this is kind of difficult. You know, we're talking about persuasion here. When do you, do you let somebody persuade you and when do you try and persuade somebody and what's the balance between letting somebody or being persuaded by something and resisting persuasion? Where's the balance? It becomes difficult when we try and think about it. Persuasion often leads to contentiousness when there is immaturity, rivalry, and self-seeking within a church. 
So in the early days, a lot of time before most of you were here, I remember we, we had a small church and it was just, well, this is still a small church, but it was a little bit smaller than this. But we want to do some things, you know, and the guys that were around us then were, I'd say, immature. So I'd say, oh, let's read a book. Here's a book that I think that we should read, you know. And I'd, give, I'd buy a book and I'd give everybody a book and we were going to read a book and go through. And, you know, we'd get from different ones, oh, you know, why, why would I want to read this book? Uh, you know, oh, this is, you know. And, and you'd get that contention starting to happen. And that sort of level of contention within a church is a destructive thing. It doesn't want to go there. It just contests and argues everything. It fights. It bickers. It, 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 it's about immaturity and about self-seeking and about power. And the Bible tells us in James, it says, where you get that self-seeking and power and that sort of stuff going, you've got every kind of disorder and every kind of demonic wisdom is there manifested amongst you. So there is a place to be persuaded and to go with the flow with those who are around you, leading you, and there is a place to resist. But it's immaturity that can't find the difference, can't find when it's right to say, okay, let's go with the flow. It's immaturity that says, no, I'm going to fight you just because I had a problem with my daddy and you like my daddy so I'm going to fight you too. I never grew up after that. I remember having a man in my employ. He lost his father when he was 10 years old. Father died. Had a massive heart attack and died. He was, so he's 10 years old. He spent all his teenage years fighting his mother and sister, fighting and bickering and, until he was in trouble with the law and he left the land that he was left and came in, into Australia and, I, and we employed him as a, as a workman. But he had never, ever grown up to take instruction from an adult male. He had never, ever experienced what it was like to take instruction from an adult male. And so I remember my dad trying to teach him one day to do something with, his, with uh, carpentry work. And as he was trying to teach him, the young man who had no idea started to argue with the journeyman who was trying to teach him a new skill. Now, that's the height of stupidness. But it comes, the contention comes from immaturity. It comes from the ability to not be able to know when to shut your mouth and to learn something and when to open your ears or when to open your mouth and say, no, it's enough now, we don't need to go there. That immaturity is the thing that produces the contention. So while we are to be persuading people and while we are to be persuaded by people, we are to be able to discern when to be persuaded and when not to be persuaded. And we need to grow up in our lives to understand when it is we need to question and when we don't question. And dealing with this personal, self-seeking, contentious attitude usually deals a lot with the old idea of when it's right to question and when it's not right. Sometimes we argue and fight about the stupidest things. And most families, when you, when you, when you ask in, in marriage counselling situations, and you ask the question, what do you fight about? And they say, over the most stupid things. Like World War III will break out because she keeps on putting, or he keeps on putting the bath mat down and making it wet. And he says, well, what's a bath mat for but to step on after you get out the shower? 
or whether the toilet paper rolls over this way or rolls over that way, you know, over the waterfall or under the waterfall. She continuously puts it under the water. She knows it aggravates me. It should go over the waterfall. That's the way it is in the, in the hotels. And so why don't we have World War III over that stupid nonsense? It's, this is the immaturity of contention. Who cares whether it's hung this way or that way? Just <laughs> So there's a, there's, there's a lot of contention, and it usually is because somebody's trying to persuade you about something you don't want to be persuaded about. And then if there's immaturity there, then it just becomes nonsense in your life. Christ calls us to be persuasive. He wants us to be persuasive. The Bible teaches us about persuasion and says it's vitally important because Christians are to be about the business of persuading people to come to Jesus. We are to be about reaching reaching out. The Great Commission is all about persuading people. Go into all the gospel and make disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples of people. That's, that's persuading people. And the whole work of the Holy Spirit is to help us. I mean, it says in, 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 um, in Luke chapter 14, verse 23, it says, go into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in. That's what he says. Compel them. That, that's a very strong word. It, it, means, it means to earnestly constrain by entreating, imploring, or persuasion. It's pretty strong. It's like... You know, this house is going to fall down. I'm going to compel you to get out of it. That's strong persuasion. That's the sort of persuasion that we are asked to use on people who are lost in sin, stuck in the, in the pit. Now, some people like their sin, so they don't want to be persuaded to get out of it. That's where you're going to have problems. But if somebody is sick of their sin and you're persuading them, they may be persuadable. But you are not, you are not to stop and lay down the the gaunt and say, oh, I'm not going to persuade anybody. You have to be persuading people. From the time you wake up in the morning, the Holy Spirit would want you to be persuasive in your life. Matthew 28 verse 18 says, And Jesus said and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So it doesn't matter what culture you come from. It doesn't matter what, what, where, you, where you, you're born, what origin you have. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. You know, he has told us to go. He's told us to be persuasive. And he says, therefore, in in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. If you have any sense of what is coming, if, what, if you have any sense of what hell might be like, if you've spent any time thinking about what it would be like for your friend, unsaved friend, to face God without the love of Jesus and the blood of Jesus covering them, if you have any sense of compassion or any sense of mercy in your bones, you would want to persuade those you love here and now to turn to Jesus. Part of the problem for our lives is we, we try and then we think, oh, it's too hard. And so we stop and then we cruise through life, giving away that beautiful mantle of persuasion that God wants us to do. I think if I never thought to persuade Liz about her walk in Jesus when we were doing a renovation on the house, how many t- years ago was that, Liz? 10 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that. 
if we never sat down and thought, you know, this woman, is not, this, this woman who's talking to me now is, is, is not in the right place with God. She needs to be persuaded of things in God. If I decide, oh, you know, I don't want to hang back, I don't want to talk to her, you know, it's a, you know just, where, where would Claudia be today? Where would James be today? You know, there, there's a cost in terms of persuasion. There's a, there's a cost involved in our lives in terms of persuasion. There's a risk involved in persuasion. I mean, you can get rejected, but there's, a, there's a, an imperative that's involved with persuasion because that's who we are. That's what God wants us to do. And the context is clearly this, that he urges us to be persuasive in the world. He is looking for us to be persuasive in the world. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 33, unless the watchman blows the trumpet, the blood of those who fall because he doesn't blow the trumpet doesn't rest with them, it rests with the watchman. And you are watchmen. You are watchwoman. You're on the wall. You know what's coming. And God says, blow the trumpet. Warn them. Warn them. Let them know. And the first thing we've got to do is probably start to say, I, I, I feel that I need to do this, so help me, God, by your strength to raise the issue. Bring me into a situation where I can speak about it. Bring me into a situation where I can start to address it. Open the doors of communication so that I have an opportunity to speak about the things that are valid and real. Lord Jesus, help me today move into a situation where I can talk with this person about you and by your Holy Spirit, help them to turn from their sin. Is that your prayer in the morning? Is that your prayer as you're going... And yet this persuasion is more than just reaching out to the lost. Paul urges believers to present themselves as living sacrifices. The word urges, I'm persuading you strongly to present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God. So the persuasion doesn't just end us going out into the world. It's here in the church and I'm trying and pleading and trying to persuade you to become persuasive and not contentious. It's part of what we do. You know, when I'm sitting in the airplane, I'm just going to Sydney or I'm going to Melbourne, you, you get dumped in the seat wherever they put you. And I'm always wanting to get the aisle seat. You know, well, you get extra room in the aisle seat. And I never get the aisle seat. Oh, that's okay. So I sit there, but I watch the people in the aisle seat. And the lady comes over and the hostess comes over and she says, if he should go down, God forbid if we go down, not that it would make any difference at all, but if we could go down, this is what we want you to do. We want you to listen very carefully to what I'm going to be screaming at you and push the door open when I tell you and put your jackets on it and then climb out onto the wing and get out of the building. Can you do that? And then she asked every person individually, have you got a problem with that? Will you do that? And they may, if I have a problem with it, I'll probably shift me and I'll get, lose my leg. Yeah, I can do that. She persuades every person to commit to that action because it's the, it's the safety of the plane that she wants to get coming from those passengers. I can imagine somebody saying, no, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> they'll probably ask her to shift and let somebody in who would do that. So persuasion is an important thing. It's important for the good of others. We're told to 
to um, get into this whole mindset where we recognize the importance of it. And the only way that I really can think of that is that we need to just verse ourselves on how horrible it's going to be to stand before God. Oftentimes we, we, we read, we read um, and sing songs that talk about the incredible love that we're going to feel, and it's probably going to be like that when we see God, the incredible love and, and beauty that we're going to feel as we come into the presence of God. But there'll be some very, very strong emotions plummeting through your systems as you stand there and your mind travels through those who are not standing with you. And that, I think, you need to think about more often because that helps you in your persuasion. I was very encouraged this morning when I was talking to Marie. And Marie rang and, and, and I said, Marie, I've been, you know, where are you? You're in hospital? Yeah, I heard you were in hospital, yeah. She said, I'm just ringing to pray for Tony. And she's not ringing to pray for herself. She's ringing to pray for another man, Tony, who's a believer, but he's hit some hard times and he's in the depths of depression. And she's persuading him to love Jesus more and wants us to pray for him. He's this heart of a woman who's going out, even in her, in her own struggle and in her own pain, is looking to persuade others about the love of Jesus. What, what a wonderful testimony of persuasion right there. Is, is that uh, God is good, eh? But persuasion is more than just words. Words are empty if they're not backed with a lifestyle, if they're not backed with character. I don't know, you, you may have had interactions with people who've got lots of words but have very little good character. They may have lots of words but may have a character that's quite rigid and, and, and proud and arrogant. And you're generally not persuaded by people who are like that. You listen to their words and because of the way they are, there's an incongruence with their words and their actions and you tend to dismiss their words because their actions speak louder than their words. You tend to dismiss it out of hand because of the attitude that's coming across with the words. They can be speaking the truth, but because they're not speaking the truth in love, you dismiss it completely. We tend to do that. You probably know people like that, that when you listen to them, you just, uh, I just I don't like you because I don't like you. I'm not going to listen to you. It doesn't matter what they say. It can be right, but I just don't like you. So I'm not, I'm not going to listen to you. So the persuasion has more to do with your lifestyle as well. So it says in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, and if you go through the Beatitudes, you, you read some incredible, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it talks about the poverty of spirit, humility of spirit, you know, where they are completely you know, humble before God. Blessed are the meek, those who are able to endure injury uh, with patience, you know, without resentment. They're able to go through, and they don't have a, a, a bitter bone in their body. Blessed are they, they hunger and thirst after. And you look at their lifestyle, and their lifestyle counts for something. The way their attitudes, their values count for something. It kind of adds weight to their words. So when this beautiful person who lives so well in front of you speaks to you, you tend to put a lot more weight on their words because of their life. And Jesus knows that because after he had just gone through all these values that we should incarnate as being Christians, he says, he says, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel or hide it under a basket. He says, you put it on top. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. 
He says, you are the light of the world. And he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's persuasiveness just by the way you live. You don't have to say a word. You don't have to say a word. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it says, to women whose husbands are not saved, it says this, live such good lives among pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day that he visits you. That you live a life so differently that your husband who's unsaved and those around you are unsaved, they look at you and they are convicted just by your lifestyle. Just by your lifestyle. In John chapter 15, verse 8, it says, And this is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. So there's a persuasiveness that comes from being saved and living according to the works of God. In fact, it actually says it in, in, in um, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18. It says, The way of the righteous is not like the first gleam of dawn, which shines ever brighter until the full day of light, or the full light of day, or the noonday, it says in one other translation. I want to get this picture. Jesus is, or the, the Word of God is describing what it is to be a righteous person. At the beginning of the exercise, it's sort of silhouette. So it's just light and black. It's either right or wrong. It's just black or white. And it usually starts off fairly simple in terms of its contrast. We start off fairly simple in terms of our contrast. Our light is there. The darkness is there. We don't know much. We can't say much. All we know is what's right and what's wrong. It's just this inner sense of God, this is not right. My conscience tells me it's not right. I can't do that anymore. And, and God, your word is right. I must read your word. I must learn more. So at the beginning of our walk, it's just like that. And our lives display that to other people. We become different. You know, we used to swear. We don't swear anymore. You don't swear anymore. Why don't you swear anymore? I just, you know, I'm following Jesus now. I don't do that anymore, you know. You don't drink anymore. Like, you don't take... What is there about you? It's just like black and white. It's early days. You can't tell them about how Christ came from glory and entered into life and explain that incarnation to them and of the virgin. But you can't explain to them the end times and what's happening in, in, in Israel and the, around the world. You can't explain all the, the depths of the theological ideas that are about to take place. You're going to grow into those. You're going to come to know those things. That's the midday sun but your life will become more and more persuasive as you become more and more attuned to God and more in touch with him until the midday sun and everything will be displayed. You'll have a heart that knows God, a heart that knows his word, a heart that can discern the smallest deviation from the truth. You'll have a heart that, and your life will be persuasive. It will shine brightly. Somebody says, why this marriage thing, you know? Saying, it just sounds so plausible that they should have the right, equal rights. You know, men with another man and women with another. Why, is it, why do we think it's so wrong? You may not understand it. Your guts may just tell you it ain't right, nor is it natural. The Word of God clearly tells you that. But you may not be able to argue from the Word of God the depths of what's happening. That's the midday sun. just got to get to this point where persuasiveness oftentimes grows in our lives, grows to that place where we have to be. Isaiah 58 verse 8 says, Let the 
Shall your light break forth like the morning in your house like the noonday sun? It's in Isaiah 60 verses 1 to 3. It says, Arise and shine, for your light has come. The shining is the ability to be persuasive. Shining. Persuading others. Shining. How many of you, when you first came to Jesus, and you went to your workplace and somebody saw you smiling and they asked you what you were on? And can I have some of what you've got? How many have experienced that? Somebody said they could see that something's different and said, what are you on? Can I have some of that? Yeah, I, I had that. Go to work and start on and be singing to Jesus. And then somebody said, what are you on, Reed? Can I have some of that? <laughs> I think you're taking drugs. No, I'm just taking Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says, Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor when the Third Reich was coming, when Hitler was coming up. He got killed. He got martyred for his faith. But as it was coming up, Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw the evil that was behind it and began to protest against it. He formed a church called the Confessing Church. And in the Confessing Church, he tried to convince and persuade people not to go down the road that they were being called to go. Of course, the, the Hitler's men had got inside all the other different churches and denominations, and they were all behind this, this move. Germany was going to be great. It was going to be powerful. It was going to be the world leader. They were so... Um, deceived by the lust for power that they went along with Hitler's ideas. And so even when they started killing people and when they started slaughtering people just because they had a euthanasia program that says you had some sort of flaw in you, they'd take you away and they'd just kill you because, you know, you weren't perfect. If you were a Jew, you were taken away and killed. If you're Polish, you're killed. You know, they've killed millions of people. And and Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, this is not right. We have to, he said, we have to will for the destruction of our nation or will for the destruction of the world as we know it. You have to choose between what you're going to do now. You have to work to destroy our nation because where our nation is going is wrong. Or you have to, if you agree with what our nation is doing, will for the destruction of civilization as we know it. And if you see the last days, he was hung two weeks before Russia released or broke into Berlin and, 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 and Hitler committed or allegedly committed suicide. He was killed two weeks before. He was masterminding or he was part of the, a, a plot to, to assassinate Hitler. I think his brother was involved in the whole thing and so they, they killed him as well. But he was an incredibly powerful man in the Lord. Not that he had much sway amongst people, but he believed you should stand up and do something about the evil that was coming in. So sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's difficult, but leadership does that. And we, in a sense, are all leaders. You might not think so, but the Word of God quite clearly says so. The Bible says that you are a kingdom of priests, a royal kingdom. It doesn't say that Mark and a few others in the church are the priests of the church. 
No, it says you, everybody who's a believer in Jesus, is a priest in the kingdom of God. And as a priest, you're a leader. And the people you're meant to lead are those who are not priests. And who, the, who are not priests? The people who are not priests are the people in the world. So you're a priest to the people in the world. You're a leader to the people in the world. And leadership is the discipline of deliberately exerting special influence within a group to move it towards goals of beneficial permanence to fulfill the group's real needs. Now, that's a big, long definition, and you can write that down. But I learned that definition a long time ago when I was about 20 years old from a man who was doing a leadership course in the church that I was going. He, he gave that, and I thought... I looked at it and I read it and I thought about it and I thought, that's true. Leadership is a discipline because you have to work hard at it and it's deliberately exerting pressure, special pressure. It's like you are purposefully doing something to move someone from one state to another state. And the thing that you're trying to move them toward is better for them and better for the group. It it presupposes that you know what's better for them. And that may sound arrogant, but it's the truth. If you know that hell is coming and judgment day is coming, you know what is better than that. And you would want to move people toward God. You'd want to exert special influence on their lives to move them from a state of hell boundness to a state of being bound to heaven. That fulfills long-lasting permanent good in an individual and in a group. And I, was, uh, <laughs> I was doing uh, my train, the trainer course, or I don't know what you call it now, it's some TAFE course whereby you can do lecturing and teaching other people. You know, you have to do a TAFE course before you can do that. And there was a lecture on leadership. And he asked us to write a definition on, of leadership. And I wrote that definition down because I had I'd learnt it, you know. So I wrote it down, and then he went round the group and said, what's your definition of leader? So I said, this is kind of long, it's not really mine, but he's, so I said, this is it, and I gave it to him. I said it real slowly, and he just exploded. Right in front of me, he just did this. Oh, what absolute bunkum. <laughs> what are you saying? You shouldn't exert any influence on anybody. He says, you should just let people do as they please. The idea of exerting special influence on the people towards a good for them is a controlling and bad thing. And he exerted special influence on the whole class to reject the definition. I thought there's a blatant dishonesty here going on. I, I, excuse, he didn't want to know about it. He didn't want to hear me. He didn't want me to say another word. He said, please, button up. I don't want to hear you have nothing to say. That's what the world does. There's an objection. There's an objection to you being persuasive. This whole same-sex argument that you're getting pummeled across your TV set, it has that whole notion to it. If you say anything to support marriage as an institution that's been good enough for a thousand years, if you say a single thing to support it, you're homophobic and a bigot. And we don't want to hear what you have to say. Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. And we have secular guys who are very concerned about the level of the argument because it has just gone into this place where we're not even discussing it anymore and they know that it's wrong. We have to give those who support marriage a say. 
And our politicians are saying, we don't want to hear it. And poor Tony Abbott, I don't care what you think about Tony Abbott, but he says, I don't want to go down this track. 172 nations of the United Nations have said, no, we are going to say no. But every time I say something, the opposition says, you're a bigot. And this, this guy who's an editor to a secular magazine, and he's a liberal, he said he's very concerned about this. He's not a Christian. He says it means that we do not enter into a discussion. We're just telling the Christian, shut up, you stupid Christian. And it's equivalent to 21st century persecution of Christians. That's what he said. And I thought, well, that's the truth. There is an objection to being influenced. However, let me influence you, says the devil. Let me tell you through every source that you plug in your ear, that every song that you want to listen to that is not from God, that comes from the world, let me give you some idea or some value that will send you straight to hell if you keep on believing it. Let me through every printed page that you read deceive your mind and tell you hard truths. The whole world's turning gay. How can, you, how can you not turn gay? You know, the whole world is doing this, which is not true. It's a lie. It's all a lie. And so we're just told, don't you influence us while we are influencing everybody else. Do not speak. We do not want to hear what you have to say, you stupid Christian. And unless there's some fight in you and some will to be persuasive, you will shut your mouth in obedience to the world's lies and suppress the truth. And when I hear men and women in the church who start to say, well, why is it wrong? I think the rot has already set in. It is wrong because God said it's wrong. As slander is wrong and stealing is wrong, sexual immorality is wrong, so is homosexuality. You know, uh, the stubborn and the rebellious scream, don't talk to me about it. We have to recognize that we have to speak about it. And if you don't know about it, you have to learn about it. And if you can't argue the fact, you need to learn to argue the point. If you don't know why rock music and secular music is bad for you, you need to find out by researching how bad it is for you. If you don't believe that Texting and playing games on the computer, this you know, game life on the computer, whatever you're doing is wrong for you. You need to start to research why and how it affects you. Digital cocaine, they call it. 
evidence to show that it's as addictive as taking cocaine. You need to understand that. You need to expose yourself. Young people, don't just go along with it because everybody in this classroom has got a phone and they are playing the phone like idiots. Don't just go along with it. Stop and say, why is this? You can always say, if everybody's doing it, there's got to be something wrong. I always ask the question when a, when a Christian book hits, the, hits the, um, the bookshelf and everybody wants to buy the book. It becomes an overnight sensation. I always question the validity of the book and I start reading the book. And when I find the book and I start, there's always the lies in it somewhere that are deceiving many people. And a lot of Christian books, when you go to the Christian bookstore, don't think that they're Christian just because they're in the Christian bookstore. Go to the top selling ones and you'll probably find that the top selling ones are full of twists. The Shack, you remember that book? Remember the book, The Shack? How many people remember the book? Oh, that came in and it was really great and everybody wanted it and it became famous. And the guy who wrote the book became famous. And, but that, what it did is it actually decompartmentalized God, broke him down into little bits and pieces and said that the Holy Spirit was like a woman and, and, it, and, it, and it broke down a whole lot of theological thought and it was very deceptive. And it took a little while before people woke up to it. But by that time... It had infiltrated through a whole lot of churches and messed a whole lot of people. There's lots and lots of books like that. Critical thinking is extremely important so you're not persuaded to believe lies. People don't like to be persuaded when they see your motives are not good. If I stand up here and, and, and I'm trying to persuade you about something, especially if I... We want you to put more in the offering this week. Why, you know I've got book, just booked a, a cruise for, the, for Christmas. If we could have more in the offering, that would help. Well, Aunty Jenny and I, it's not true. Aunty Jenny and I, I want to go on a cruise. We want to go cruise down around um, New Zealand. So if you could put a little, little gift in there and put some money on it and then help us with the cruise payments, that would be really good. Now, some of you will actually go and think, is that true, Mark? And you'll, you'll oh, I can got a you know, $100 I can put in there. Maybe some of you got $1,000 you could put in there, you know. You've heard this sort of line before. It goes on in churches over and over and over again. And you ask the question, what's the motive behind this? Well, it's for me, isn't it? And you, knew, you love me, don't you? And I'm worth it. So why don't you do it? Don't do it, folks. I'm not going on a cruise. That's not happening. I'm just telling you a story, just to... The motive behind it. And some people are so blinded by that. They just love the man so much. Here's a thousand dollars for your cruise. Friends, Paul tells us about our motive. He says, Paul wrote, he says, For our exhortation, which is his ability to persuade you, does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. He says, we got a clean motive here. He was down there and he was working with his hands in Thessalonians to provide for his own needs. He says, I set this as a model for you to follow. He says, I'm not even here working amongst you and preaching amongst you because I'm getting paid from you. I actually provide for myself and look after myself. I'm only here for you, for God. That's the motive. 
Don't think I want anything from you because there's nothing in me that wants anything from you. I just want to take you from where you are and take you to where God wants you to be because I love God and want to please Him. Has nothing to do with what I'm getting out of it. That's a pure motive. You are more likely to be persuaded by somebody who has that as a motivation rather than somebody who says, you know, if you could just give an extra little bit, then Jenny and I can get away on a cruise. Your motive is really important when you're trying to persuade somebody. And, and when we're trying to talk to you about this idea of leadership, being a discipline, uh, deliberately exerting special influence within a group to move it toward goals of beneficial permanence that fulfill the, the group's real needs. When we talk about that, there are some principles that you need to have in your mind that would underline how to be most persuasive. How do we be most persuasive? Here's some principles. Now, I'm going to talk about these. I'm going to give you, give you some references, scripture reference for each one of these. This is the last slide, and, well, second last slide, and everybody said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but there's some content in this slide. So get your pen and get ready, because I'm going to give you scripture references for each one of these. And I'm going to talk to you. This is the principle of persuasion. Okay, These are the things that you need to think about if you want to persuade somebody. The first principle of persuasion is reciprocity. Everybody say reciprocity. Okay, let's give and take. Now, the scripture I want you to draw your attention to is Jesus when he's at the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 7. He comes up to the woman, Samaritan woman, and he says, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone to town to buy some food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and you're asking a Samaritan woman for a drink? And he begins a dialogue. There's power in dialogue, the give and the take of communication. Don't go to a person and start to try and persuade them and not let them speak. Don't talk to me. I'm just going to tell you what I have to tell you because I can't handle you discussing anything with me. I'm scared that I might have an answer that you can't, I can't answer it. There's no give and take. I just give it to you and run. Track, giving out a track sometimes is just, let me put this in your hand. Don't talk to me. See you later. Help the, hope, hope the Holy Spirit will do the discussion. Friends, you have to get into a habit of give and take. She says, how are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And then Jesus says, oh, give and take, okay. Well, if you knew what I could give you, you'd be asking me for a drink. There was this dialogue to and fro. Listen, friends, a dialogue is good for you. You will not know the answer to some of the hard questions. But you can always say, that's a brilliant question. Can I get that back to you with an answer? That's give and take. Somebody will be more persuaded if you are doing that than if you are just telling them what you think. Friends, the first principle for persuasion is the ability to hear what somebody else is saying and answer it correctly. If you're so busy telling them what you have learnt in Sunday school and not listening to them, they will not be persuaded because you are not speaking to their situation. So you have to open your ears to listen. Commitment to others. That's the second principle. 
In John chapter 12, verse 23 through to 26, so that's John chapter 12, 23 to 26, Jesus made this statement. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verily I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. For where and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. That's a commitment, not to yourself. That's a commitment to the other. For the other's good. Your persuasion has to come from a heart that is so full of the other's need that you will die in the process of delivering the message. You are so consumed about the other's state that if they reject you, so be it. It doesn't matter. You are so committed to their well-being in God that you will suffer rejection just in the ability to speak it because you are not motivated to get anything from it. You're just motivated to give something from God. Their good is your end. And God's glory is what you want to see in their lives. When you've got that as a motivation, it's, it's very hard to knock that. You see, you say, what do you want? The woman says, what are you wanting from me? What are you trying to get out of me? You, know, you think I'm a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day? You think I'm good for something? You want something from me? Jesus says, this is not about what I can get from you, woman. I've got more than you could even handle. This is what I could give to you. There was no motivation in Jesus to get anything. He just wanted to give something. It was a commitment to the other. And it convinced her. It persuaded her. He could just go into her life and open it up like that and say, this is what I'm going to give you. I have found somebody who could tell me all the things that I have done. I think he's the Christ. Persuaded she was by his commitment to her. Don't expect to get anybody to listen to them, to you if you are not committed to them and to their well-being. A lot of people... Oh, we, we were in church once and some of our friends started selling Tupperware. We hadn't seen these friends for a while. Then we got a phone call. Ring, ring. Oh, it's just great. How are you? Good. We haven't seen you for a while. Yeah, that's okay. I was wondering if we could come over. Yeah, that would be nice. Here I am thinking they want to catch up. Here I am. They want to be friends. Here I am thinking, oh, great. We haven't got a lot of cross-pollination of Christian friendship happening in the church. And here they wanted to be friends with us. When they get there, can we tell you what we're into? We want to sell you something. We want to use this preferred friendship as a means to gain something. You know what? I'm not persuaded. In fact, that works against persuasion. I'm looking there and saying, you are not truthful with me. You didn't want to know me. You just wanted to sell me. And immediately I am not persuaded to buy Tupperware from them. Think. Think. Critically think. Why are you trying to persuade them? Is it for yourself? Put a notch in your belt? 
or is it for Jesus? And for their good. Ask the question, if you want to persuade men, this is an important principle. Let it be for their good and not your own. Social proof. That's the third aspect or third principle, social good. In Acts chapter 2, we read this. Social proof. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to, the, to give to people who were in need. Every day they continued to meet and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of people and the Lord added to their number every day those who should be saved. There was some evidence that what they were doing was good. There's got to be some social proof. That's the importance of being in a fellowship and in a dynamic fellowship where people care about one another. Jesus says in John chapter 13 that you love as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the social proof. You know, people are broken and lonely, rejected and hurt in a world that doesn't care about groups or anything apart from sports groups and stuff like that. Individualism is so strongly presented in our group that it's all about you as the individual. You're the most important person in the world, hey? But you know what? We are the loneliest generation that's ever been born because the fabric of society has been just smashed to bits. Daddies are no longer at home for their kids. If they are at home, they're angry and they're distracted and distracted by games or by sports or by something else. Their children run amok. They don't want to have any time with their parents because their parents are a bore. Mum's doing something that she shouldn't do or she's, you know, they're distracted. And the, and the kids are just doing their own thing, you know. And that's not just one family. I mean, in 1953, it might have been one or two families, but that's just like 80, 80% of the kids now go home and it's just like that. Marriages are busted up. If you're in a home with mum and dad and they haven't been they haven't separated, you're in a rare little cookie there. You're in a rare situation. If your parents, your original parents are still together, it's a rare thing. Now that's not knocking and mocking anybody who's in a broken life, because this, but it's just saying this. Our society needs social proof that this works. So when Russell comes to church and he says... I haven't felt the love of God in a lot of churches because I'm me. Sometimes people reject me for being me. They don't like me. I don't know what it is to make people like me. And the place I thought I could find love is a place where I felt rejection and ostracization. And that should reflect on our lives and we should think about that what is the social proof of our faith? That you love the unlovely, that you care for the broken, that you heal the brokenhearted, and you pick up those who are hungry and you clothe the naked and you spend yourself for the poor. Then your righteousness will shine like the... That's what social proof is about. 
Why did people add themselves to the community in, in, in the book of Acts? Because it was working. People love one another. They sold the extra that they have and gave it for the good of the group. It wasn't self-centered. It was God-glorifying. Why did it work? They had social proof. Now listen, friends. If you want to have the backing of social proof behind your persuasion, get involved in the church and make the church like you know it ought to be. If you see somebody alone and no one's talking to them, get out of yourself and talk to them. If you see somebody hasn't been asked out for dinner, take them out for dinner. Do something to mess people together. Go and talk to somebody who's sitting alone. Get out of your skin and get into somebody else's face and love them like you know you should. Then you will have some social proof and that will be an incredible persuasion to people to come looking. I remember when Liz came to our church, she used to think we were a strange bunch. We used to hug everybody. And then Liz is not a huggy person, you know, and neither is Warren, you know. We used to have church in the park. And I go, hey, I got Liz, hug, hug, hug. Everybody's groping Liz. And Liz is going, <laughs> social proof, we care. Weird, I know. Uncomfortable, I know. But social proof that the persuasion that we had was genuine. That God was real and he breaks down barriers. Thank you, Jesus. We need social proof. We need to be likable. Likable. We're told that our words would be with grace, seasoned with salt. We're told that the tongue has the power of life and death. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2, it says, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it eat its fruit. You can kill something with that thing. Everybody grab their tongue. Ruth, you're not grabbing your tongue. Mm -hmm. The Bible says this. If you can control that thing, you're a perfect man. That's what it says in James. If you can control your tongue, you're a perfect man. You know what the problem is? We praise with the tongue, we praise God, and with the tongue, we spit down on our man. That's the problem. You see, we can't persuade people if we haven't learned that our words are extremely important. That the words that come out of our mouth have to be like grace seasoned with salt. They have to be apples of gold and settings of silver if we want to persuade people. Don't think that you're going to persuade people that one day you're nice to them and the next day you're criticizing and they hear you later on slandering them. Don't think that they'll be persuaded of anything other than you're a hypocrite. Oh, the power of your words. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 says these, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impact grace to the hearers. Let nothing come out of your mouth that would be corrupt or would put down or would slander. He said nothing like that. He says only stuff that would edify. Now I want to take you back into your kitchen. I want to take you back to where you bake breakfast in the morning. And I want to take you back to the interactions that you're having with your brothers and your sisters and with your mum and your dad. And I want you to listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth. Are they persuading me that you are a Christian or are they persuading me that you don't know a clue about Christianity? Are your words likable? You can always tell a person who's just met Jesus because their mouth changes. The way they speak changes. 
It's not the same water coming out the well anymore. The well has changed. The words are different. It's only a person who's backslidden that you can hear the poison starting to come out their mouth again. Words, likable words. Colossians chapter 4 verse 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. In Isaiah chapter 50 verse 4, we often think that getting up in the morning is praying and talking a lot to God, don't we? It's like, okay, God, it's my turn to pray to you. We get down on our knees and we say, here's my list. And we start at the top and we go, and we get tired out. All the rest too. And we've done it. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. In Isaiah 50 verse 4, the Lord says, Jesus says this, morning by morning, he wakens my ear to listen like one being taught that he would give me the words to sustain the weary. His prayer time wasn't a matter of talking to God. It was a matter of listening to God so that his speech was more persuasive during the day. Did you get that? Did you hear that? Don't get up in the morning and talk to God. Do something different. Shut your mouth, open the word of God and say, speak to me, help me so that my speech will be able to sustain the wearies. Though I'm being persuasive when I am in the world, that I can persuade somebody to love Jesus more, that I can persuade them that this life with Christ is better than a life with sin. Listen to God. Let him change your verbs. Let him change your lips. Let him change the way you speak. So that your words are likable. The principle of authority is very important because you can have authority in a whole lot of things. I can be an authority in rock music, I can be an authority in movies, I can be an authority in sport. In fact, I can follow the origin matches so well and I can know every player in the, in the state of origin and I can know their state and their fitness condition and how many scores they won over the last number of games. And I can give you some quite long and steady discussion about it. In fact, when I'm working out in the gym, I sometimes listen to the men who are working alongside me and they are telling me how, authority, how much authority they have in the knowledge of sport. You have authority. The question is, where is your authority base? What is it that you're leaning on? My authority is not in how much I know, it's who I know. It's not how much I know of the Word of God, it's who I know and how I learn to walk with Him. It is in the Word of God that we have our basis of authority, but it's learning to live that Word out through our lives and follow His direction that gives us the final authority. The ability to speak into somebody's life following a nudge from God has a whole lot more weight than somebody just coming up and slapping a track in your hand. I I, I bought these zucchinis to you because I just felt God said you needed some zucchinis. 
Well, that's just exactly what I need. I had it. Well, that's walking in the Spirit. I remember my sister Mandy was talking about the neighbour and she was praying for the neighbour and God told her to take her some zucchinis and she dismissed it and the neighbour came over or something, I think it was something like that, and asked for zucchinis. Yeah, wouldn't that be the worst thing, hey? I remember, I've got more stories. Oh, never mind, I've done looking at the old cock. I'm going to stretch you today. I remember going to a shopping centre at Christmas time. Some of you may know this story. And I saw a lady that I'd gone through Bible college with. She came through. And her husband had just had uh, cancer cut out of his head uh, or, or some situation. And it was very, very sad. And she was sitting there and she came to the shopping And I don't know why I was there. I just pulled in and I decided to go to the shopping center. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? Just you know, one of those things and God told me to do it. And so I just do it. And I don't know why I'm doing it. You done that lately? You done that recently? Did it work out for you? Sometimes it doesn't work out, hey. But sometimes it does. So I'm sitting there. I've walked through the shop beforehand and I'm stopped at a packet of dried apricots. And I'm thinking to myself, buy the dried apricots. I mean, it's just my thoughts, isn't it? Just an idea that I wish I would have followed. I had the money in my pocket. I could have bought the dried apricots. Anyway, I come out and I meet this woman. She sits down and she cries. She starts to pour out all of the situation. I'm sitting there listening to her. I'm listening to her. You know, we sit for an hour and I'm listening to her story and I end up praying with her. And I said, why did you come here? The shop is closed now. She says, I came to buy a packet of dried apricots. How I wish I had bought the dried apricots. I looked it dumbfounded. She says, how long will it take me to learn to walk with your authority over my life, to listen to you when you speak to me. It's not about what you know. It's about if you learn to walk with him and talk with him. You've got to be willing to be a fool. The authority of God's spoken word into your life and just move it. For here's in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So we are all meant to be working for the edifying of the body of Christ that we all come to unity of the faith and that the knowledge of the Son of God to the perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. That's the persuasion of the world. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, that we become like Jesus and we speak God's truth in God's motive of love. That's pretty persuasive. You can't get past that. You can't escape that. This person stands in front of me and I know they love me and tells me some real honest truth about my life. And suddenly it dawned on me, no one else is telling me the truth. Only this person has risked it all to talk to me now. And it convinces me Everybody else is a liar, but God is the truth teller. And I am convinced because of the motive and the authority of that life that's come before me. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God and the woman of God may be completely thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You know, the authority in our message is the fact that we speak God's word the way he wants us to speak it. And we know him well enough to follow his lead and his guidance. That then has authority. We often get so caught up with ourselves and so worried about what people are going to say, we stop and we just say, okay, I'm not going to do this. And then we, we, we feel regret and we live in a life which is less than where we got. We should be, we, we've lost the excitement of witness. We've lost the excitement of evangelism. We've lost the excitement of leading people to Jesus because we've accepted this notion that no one wants to hear it anymore. Ask Jesus, lead me, lead me to an open door. Lord Jesus, give me your word as I'm sitting here in the morning. Open my ears to hear like one being taught. Beam into me what I can beam out to them. Then hit the road and look for it because it's coming towards you. He is willing and able and more desirous that sinners be saved than you are. And if you make yourself available, if you take God's word as an authority, he will open the doors of communication and you can change the life of an individual by the persuasion of the Holy Spirit within you. Amen? The last principle is the principle of time constraints, God's timing. We're told that there's an importance about this. The immediacy of the gospel is really important. I have moments that I regret in my life because I didn't take and do what Jesus told me to do when he told me to do it. You may have those situations too. I was going to say something to somebody, but they died before I got there. God spoke to me on a number of occasions and said, you're going to talk to this person. And I'm, oh, yeah, I'll, later, just do this, this and that. And then I, they, they, they died. When God speaks, there's an immediacy that he wants. He says, you know, do it now. Now is when I want you to do it. Now is the time. Now is when I'm speaking to you. Now is what you should do. Now is when you, you're sitting there and you're talking to somebody and, and they're talking about something and then the word drops into your ear and inside your mind there are words that you could say. You don't know where they came from. There are words that you could say to tell them about Jesus. And you go, ah, um, ah, um, ah, um, ah. You're scared. You're frightened to say those words. But they're there because there's an immediacy there. This, this is idea. Now is the time. I put the words there. Speak the words now. Right now. Say those words. Speak those words now. Oh, he says, I'm looking for somebody. I'm looking for somebody. He says, my eye searches the land. I'm looking for somebody who will stand in the gap, who will stand between. But I could find none. But I could find none. I'm looking. 
I'm searching, my eye is searching for somebody to stand in the gap to persuade man not to go that way. And I'm looking and I'm searching and the God says, I can find nobody. Therefore, with my arm, I will make my salvation known, he says. He says, I called you to be my witnesses. There's an immediacy about that whole thing. You breathe air, not because you are getting an education. You breathe air, not because you are making money. You breathe air, not because you are doing life. You breathe air to live for Jesus. That's the bottom line. Everything else is going to be burned up. Everything else is going to be turned to dust. The only thing that you can take with you to eternity is the soul of another man that you led to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 13 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. He says, But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Get, get this in your mind. What you do for Jesus, you have to do every day. Today is the day. Today is the day. So when you wake up in the morning, don't think that you're just doing a Monday tomorrow morning. Is this a Monday? I'm going to do a Monday. What Monday is this thing? Wake up and expect to be used by God. And it may be just to encourage somebody else in the fellowship. It may be just to bring somebody in the fellowship and say, I want to encourage you. As the day is long, I want to say, don't quit. Don't, don't turn back. Keep on going for Jesus. Keep on loving Jesus. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I want to be part for the good today. So I'm going to actually not wait for somebody to call me. I'm going to ring somebody and I'm going to send a text message to them and let them know, be strong in God. And I'm going to be glued. This week I'm going to get out there and I'm going to, every day I'm going to deliberately do something to bring people closer to Jesus. I'm going to be persuasive. You'll be surprised how dynamic your week will become and how much energy God will give you to do that. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, just as it is destined, people are destined to die, and then the judgment. Did you just think about that? It's given for men to die once, and then the judgment. Time constraints. There's a terminal about our lives. We're terminal. You got tomorrow, Ruth? You got tomorrow? We guess. We hope. You got tomorrow, Patty? Have I got tomorrow? I don't know. Only God knows that, hey? How important is it then if God speaks to us to tell and speak to somebody that we should listen to him? Because you just don't know whether tomorrow it's judgment day. You just don't know. I regret that I have blood on my hands. Other people here I know have felt the blood on their hands. We know we got forgiveness from Jesus, but I would change it if I could. I'm exhorting you. There are time constraints. The principle of persuasion is linked upon this idea that when God speaks to you, there is a time for the right word and there's a time for the message of God. And God just may be saying to you, please speak to them now because this is their last chance. 
This is the last time they will hear this word. Can it be from your mouth? And I said, I don't want to be rejected by men. I don't think I'll do that. That's crazy, you know. Persuasion. You were called to persuade. Not to be persuaded of rot and rubbish, but to be persuaded of the eternal things of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, persuasion is a gift, the gift of influencing others and pushing the minds of fellow citizens to think critically and act differently for the benefit of society. That's pretty profound. He said that, and they hung him because he tried to do that. They took him out, stripped him naked, put a rope around his neck. He prayed, and they pulled him up off the ground and hung him because he was willing to die to persuade others. Are you willing to do that, friends? Does it, does Christianity, does it mean that much to you? Does Jesus mean that much to you? That you'll be rejected by men to be accepted by him? Friends, this is the last sermon on the power of discernment. If you cannot discern the importance of your life in this world, you haven't even begun. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. So don't put it under a bucket and hide it. You put it on the top that it shines out and influences everybody. You have to choose to influence. Not for your own sake and for your own good, but for the sake of Jesus and for the good of the other. Amen? Let's stand up, shall we? Jesus, we know this has been a long word and we thank you that you've given these folk, Father, an opportunity to listen and to not become tired and not to become weary as they're listening, Father. I thank you for the word that's gone into their hearts, Father, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that rests upon their lives. Jesus, unless you do the work in us, Father, we can't do anything because we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it is you, God, who is at work within us to work and to will for your good pleasure. Father, so we open our hearts up to you today, Father, every one of us, and we ask you, Lord Jesus, to so persuade us to be persuading of others. So persuaders of truth, Father, that our lives are so strongly, brightly shining, Father, that others see your glory and turn to light in Jesus. We ask for open doors this week. We ask for this people to become snared by you, Lord Jesus, caught by you, constrained by you, persuaded by you, to do your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.